I'm Danica Juarez. And I'm Jan James. And this is How's It Hold Up? Hi, I'm Danica. And I'm Jan. And I'm Valerie. And today, on our shorts episode, we watched two Windsor McKay shorts from 1911 and 1914, I think. Um, Little Nemo and Gertie the Dinosaur. Um, They are his most well-known shorts. Uh, Gertie the Dinosaur, in particular, is uh, one of the best-known early pre-Disney kind of shorts. Um, Without getting into real spoilers or details. What do you guys feel about them, both in terms of uh, historical context, uh, any contributions before I get into actual details you think it did or did not give to the medium, that sort of thing, and then just, you know, pure enjoyment factor. Oh, like the packaging around the actual shorts was boring. I didn't care about it. And the shorts themselves were, the first one was little yikes um and the second one was was fine yeah i guess i need i i'm interested to hear contextually their impact because otherwise i i i didn't like them that much or they were they were okay so you safe to say you would not consider without any context them to be enjoyable in their own right in this day and age yeah yeah i think that's that's pretty fair to say I think I would definitely echo that. I think what I found the most interesting was the writing techniques and uh, especially the, you know, dipping into the ink and, and just the the beauty and the amazement of, of how someone can, can draw so precisely with, with some things and coloring in. That was really interesting. And then the, the movements, I think the biggest thing for me is just to see how far we've come. It's like, wow. I can't because I I take animation for granted and I take its its movements and its fluidity and and beauty and and you know forms and all of that for granted and just to to realize how especially at the beginning of animation where every single thing was hand drawn nothing was you know duplicated di- digitally and just the volume of things that someone is drawing in that sense it was interesting yeah um yeah i like valerie said the 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 wrapping around these bits of animation is has not stood the test of time at all Mm -hmm. um so if you're gonna watch little nemo i'd probably say just watch the animated bit um and if you're gonna watch gertie you could watch the full thing but you could also just skip to the dinner part (laughs) um where he presents the actual short Especially, and I know it was at the time and people dressed and, you know, dressed a certain way, but especially in today's climate, it just has such an air of um, exclusivity and privilege and exclusion. It just, yeah, just doesn't, (laughs) not enjoyable to watch. Let's start getting into some details. I have a lot of notes, uh, all, all directly taken from Wikipedia, so, you know. 
Um, if you don't like me reading Wikipedia stuff and us talking about it, you're probably going to enjoy this one. Um, <laughs> let's talk about beginnings and influences and stuff. Winsor McKay had worked prolifically as a commercial artist and cartoonist by the time he started making newspaper comic strips, such as Dream of the Rarebit Friend from 1904 to 11, and his signature strip, Little Nemo in Slumberland from 1905 to 14. Um, in 1906, McKay began performing on the vaudeville circuit, doing chalk talk performances in which he drew before live audiences. So like old TED Talks? Basically, <laughs> but vaudeville, yeah. I think, was a little more focused on pure entertainment factor. Sure. Um, inspired by flip books his son Robert brought home, McKay said he came to see the possibility of making moving pictures of his cartoons. McKay, then in his early 40s, asserted he was the first man in the world to make animated films, but he was likely familiar with the earlier work of American James Stewart Blackton and the French Emily Cole. Uh, Blackton produced one film in 1900 and his most well-known work in 1906, which is the humorous faces of funny faces that we saw, while Cole's films were first distributed in the United States in 1909, the year McKay said he first became interested in animation. According to McKay biographer John Canemaker, McKay combined the interactive qualities of Blackton's films with the abstract, shape-shifting qualities of Cole's into his own films. Let's talk a little bit about Little Nemo. This is considered McKay's masterpiece, uh, the, the comic strip Little Nemo in Slumberland. It debuted in October 1905 as a full-page Sunday strip in the New York Herald. Its child protagonist, whose appearance was based on McKay's son Robert, had fabulous dreams that would be interrupted with his awakening in the last panel. Uh, the dragon chariot that carries off Nemo and the princess in, in what we watched originally appeared in three episodes of Little Nemo in Slumberland in the mid-1906. Okay. So, um, and, and yes, if any of you are wondering, that is the 1980s movie, Little Nemo in Slumberland. Yes, same property. Um, production. By late 1910, McKay had made the 4,000 rice paper drawings for the animated portion of the film. Each was assigned a serial number, and marks were made in the top corners for registration. They were mounted on sheets of cardboard to make them easier to handle and photograph. Before he had them photographed, he tested them on a hand-cranked 24 by 12 by 20 inch um, mutoscope-like machine to ensure the animation was fluid, which I think we got a, a little look at at one point in the short when he was kind of cranking that thing and the pages were flipping. Um, McKay used an animation loop for a repeated action in only one sequence. He reused a series of seven drawings six times, three forward, three back, to have Flip move his cigar up and down in his mouth three times. Uh, McKay made more extensive use of this technique in, later, in his later films. Uh, the film's positive reception motivated McKay to hand color each of the 35 millimeter frames of the originally black and white film. So originally the animated portion was black and white like the rest of it and like Gertie is, um, but he ended up going back and, and coloring it. Um, it debuted in movie theaters in April on April 8th, 1911, and four days later McKay began using it as part of his vaudeville act. Uh, it was popular with audiences and earned positive reviews, and in 1938, architect Claude Bragdon reminisced of the excitement he felt when he first saw it, saying he had witnessed the birth of a new art. So, it went over well. Yeah. Um, we can talk some more about Little Nemo if we want before I go into Gertie, which is the more well-known short. Oh, but yeah. That is now the uh, the context for, some, uh, for, for Little Nemo, which has a more ridiculous name. 
Um, but is generally just referred to as Little Nemo. Um, Little Nemo's Adventures in Slumberland? Or no, the, the name of this short is is something kind of braggadocious about Windsor McKay. And okay. I don't think he even mentions Little Nemo. But sure. it's just colloquially referred to as Little Nemo. Well, first, are we going to get specific? Yeah, let's get specific. Okay. <laughs> do we do that in this one? I don't uh, know. We sort of. I mean, it's fluid. We're kind of still figuring this one out. That's um, fair. But yeah, let's let's talk about story characters. I mean, let's talk about all of it. No, also, for sure. animation and stuff too. Uh, there's not really voice acting to speak of. The uh, video that we watched had um, some kind of piano music playing during it, but that isn't necessarily the music that played um, either in its theatrical releases or during its vaudeville performances. Um, I think it is important to to keep in mind that with both this and Gertie. The vaudeville performance was perhaps the one that he focused on the most. These, we see these now as just one particular short that is all recorded. But the main way in which people in that day experienced it was live performances especially anyone who lived around the area he was able to perform obviously what, what would he do like what do you mean he uh, especially you know think of how um in gertie in particular there is a lot of back and forth between him and the dinosaur sure that sort of those his interjections can be played up a whole lot more um he can have fun with it and do more of a performance um when he throws the um pumpkin or, or whatever into Gertie's mouth he has a pumpkin and he throws it he like sure. throws it and makes it seem like that actually went into the page when at the end when he uh gets on Gertie and rides away he goes off the screen uh, uh off of the stage and, shows up and then that. shows up on the screen you know what I'm saying so it, it was a performance in that way sure that makes sense and that accounts for some of the humor in both um because it was the kind of vaudeville slapstick humor of the day sure for the first one uh your your note about how he did it makes some of the packaging around it more interesting to know that had that contraption uh to showed how he would test the animation footage and it's like oh okay so that didn't seem completely useless and i guess and he and he has like the guy come in and knock all the stuff over and it's both there for comedy but i think also to really illustrate the absurd amount of drawings he had to make to do this he wants to emphasize that to the audience yeah i think if 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 this were kind of shown academically or in in a different context that it would be helpful to have some of that information up front to know to look for it so that the first part just isn't as boring. Yeah. Uh, where you're just like, why am I watching this? Otherwise, like, yeah, I watched, uh, and I wouldn't say, uh, the 1980s movie was like an indelible part of my childhood, but it's also one of the, it's something that I definitely remember. And I may have only seen it a couple of times, but like, I think similar to Prince the Cobbler, like parts of it stuck with me. So, I I didn't know that this for sure came from that. And and now that you say it, of course, the character with the cigar is is the character in the movie. Uh, there is a third character there. There are four characters in the short, three of whom I believe are in the 1980s movie. 
One of whom I do not believe is in there, unless they were changed so much as to be unrecognizable. Possibly. I don't. I don't know. But I definitely am curious about other information because that definitely poisons it for me a bit. The the character that wasn't there is a is a blackface tribe person. Yeah. Character. Uh, and I can only assume that if, you know, Flip and, and I didn't realize that the other character was Nemo with the, it looked like a mask at first, but. Yeah, he had like some kind of flowy weird Fancy, outfit. fancy hat or whatever. Uh, if that princess, was. princess shows up at one point. If that was Nemo, that the third character must have been in the comics. Because yeah, why bring up only two characters that are. No, that. It, that are famous mm-hmm. and then, ha- no. So these, this was a part of the comics. That is another interesting thing oh, to Oh, there's note. actually five characters because there's that old dude that they oh, fall sh- on at the end. Yeah, yeah. That dude might have been in the movie. I don't remember. Uh, I, I don't really remember. Yeah, I don't know. But, but you know, that that's interesting. I find that more interesting because, again, I'm familiar with the film. Yeah, I thought you would. <laughs> uh, I think it's also important, I guess, to keep in the context of the fact that this was still so new to people at this point, that this could be a vaudeville act of just like, wow, he's interacting with this cartoon thing that moves so realistically compared to anything that we're used to seeing is the appeal of Gertie. And the appeal of Little Nemo is just, oh, wow, look at how he was able to like, bring these characters to life and have them move around. And it's that's new at that yeah. point. Within less than 10 years, it wouldn't be anymore. But in 1911 and even in 1914, that still was new to people. That was an experience. Um, and that's just not something that can be replicated now because we can take animation for granted so easily. Like, this isn't special anymore. Uh, you, I think you see a little bit of that today in like kids cartoon shows where they are not just cartoons, but any kid show where you can ask them, Oh, what's that over there? Or what do you do? And they answer you like, uh, not to say like the people like doing that in that time was very childish of them, but it was just, it was just new. And and like you said, you, you could do that and there wasn't something established. Uh, but I, I think that's kind of neat that still like with kids and things, you can get them to, to believe, like they'll yeah. buy in, yeah, yeah, and enjoy Blue's it. Blues Clues, Dora, all the others that have done yeah. that similar sort of format. Yeah, no, I, I. Another thing that just really struck me is I'm not used to knowing who the animators uh, animators are, and them. And that's having... something with shorts in particular. I really want to cure mm-hmm. you. <laughs> I know because I know, and, and which that's is the thing because you... I know. I don't know if some people listening feel like I need to bring that up more often with the movies we cover, but the issue is that with ones that aren't like Disney and other really well-known ones, it's often very difficult to find animators besides like whatever's listed in the credits if they're there. Um, and then it's just, I don't know, it feel it feels like knowing who Art Babbitt is and knowing who the nine old, the other nine old men are for Disney isn't a thing that mom and Valerie are immersed in. And it feels like it adds so much time trying to do it for them that 
I just haven't really, but I think the shorts format is a, is an area where I can put a little bit more of a focus on that, especially as we get into the the Fleischer brothers and their work, um, and to Warner Brothers and the the mini um, when they start really the difference between different animators becoming very clear um and and even disney stuff um shorts wise it, i i hope to get into that a little bit more because it is i mean it's a, a it's a huge part of animation obviously but it's the sort of thing only real animation nerds really tend to care about so well and if you think about it oh you know this is an incredible art form and you don't think twice that a, a singer or songwriter, sometimes obviously songwriters are more behind the scenes because they're not always the singers, but they don't hesitate to be out there and, and showcasing their talents and, and really even getting those accolades directly from the audience. So it's so interesting to see this this animator, this artist doing, you know, being in in that kind of close contact with his audience members and vaudeville and, and being very almost appearing boastful of, of his work, but why shouldn't he be? I mean, what a talent. I mean, what a skill. Yeah. I, I think it's curious uh, talking about boastfulness talents. I uh, Bringing this particular guy up, and we can talk later, I guess, too, is that, like, for him to say that he was the first one, mm-hmm. yet to not be... Definitely shows some ego. Half, yeah. And that he is a performer, I think that is a very particular combination that isn't every animator. And so mm-hmm. I'm sure he... I uh, just happened to have a couple of very good talents to combine it in this way. Uh, so that I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing in this particular short was interesting that I don't think we saw. I guess we saw it with humorous uh, faces, faces of funny faces or whatever. The warping of body and things like that, that we didn't see in the one with the um, poor Pete. Because that was more realistic scene. And I think early on, it's very easy to do the, the the mashing and like stretching and stuff like that, that animation is really good for. It, it calls to mind Emily Cole's Phantasmagory too, yeah. which was that kind of stream of consciousness stuff would melt in and out, but proportions would change. Yeah. So I thought that's interesting. And, and, and I expect in a lot of early stuff to, to see that before it kind of settles into maybe wanting to look more realistic. Which because is of li- literally, influence. it's not just Disney's influence because Gertie was the influence. Oh, uh, Gertie's influence. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so yeah, like, let's let's talk some more about Gertie. It is the earliest animated film to feature a dinosaur. Just a quick little fun fact there. Um, McKay actually followed Little Nemo in 1912 with a short that we didn't watch called How a Mosquito Operates, in which a giant, naturalistically animated mosquito sucks the blood out of a sleeping man. That's oh, horrible. That is. <laughs> Terrible! Thank you for sparing us. Oh You're welcome. My Did you have you watched it? I tried to watch some of it. It's hard to <laughs> hard for me to handle. McKay gave the mosquito a personality. It had us a little hat and balanced humor with the horror of the nightmare situation. His animation was criticized as being so lifelike that he must have traced to the characters from photographs or resorted to tricks using wires to show that he had not. McKay chose for his next film to feature a creature that could not have been photographed, thus a dinosaur. Ah. 
So production. Yeah, right. Um, McKay considered a number of names for b- before settling on Gertie. His production notebooks used Jesse the Dinosaurus. Uh, Disney animator Paul Satterfield recalled hearing McKay in 1915 relate how he had chosen the name Gertie. He heard a couple of sweet boys, which are gay men, um, out in the hall talking to each other. And one of them said, oh, Bertie, wait a minute, in a very sweet voice. He thought it was a good name, but wanted it to be a girl's name instead of a boy's. So we called it Gertie. So we have gay men to thank for the name Gertie. All all right. Yay. (laughs) Gay men taking their place in animation history. (laughs) Um, McKay was concerned with accurate timing and motion. He timed his own breathing to determine the timing of Gertie's breathing and included subtle details such as the ground sagging beneath Gertie's great weight, which you particularly notice towards the end when she drinks from the lake and then she kind of sags over the edge of it. And when when she stands back up, you see kind of a, a divot or whatever from her body. McKay consulted with New York Museum staff to ensure the accuracy of Gertie's movements. The staff were unable to help him find out how an extinct animal would stand up from a lying position. So, in a scene in which Gertie stood up, McKay had a flying lizard come on screen to draw away viewers' attention. It works, too. You will always look at that flying creature. Uh, Gertie was the first film to use animation techniques such as keyframes, registration marks, tracing paper, the mutoscope action viewer, and animation loops. Gertie was McKay's first piece of animation with detailed backgrounds. Main production began in mid-1913. Working in his spare time, McKay drew thousands of frames of Gertie on six and a half by eight and a half inch sheets of rice paper. The drawings themselves occupied a six by eight inch area of the paper, marked with registration marks in the corners to reduce jittering of the images when filmed. They were photographed uh, mounted on large pieces of stiff cardboard. McKay pioneered the McKay split system of animation in which major poses or positions were drawn first and the intervening frames drawn after. This relieved tedium and improved the timing of the film's actions. That process becomes essential to animation and results in the... the... Storyboarding? No, well... Partially, but no, it it results in the job title of in-betweeners. You will have the main animators who draw the big poses, the big important poses and stuff within things. And then you have in-betweeners who have the job of doing the frames of animation that gets exactly... Um, McKay was open about the techniques that he developed and refused to patent his system, reportedly saying, any idiot that wants to make a couple of thousand drawings for a hundred feet of film is welcome to join the club. Uh, Wow. (laughs) Yeah. During production of Gertie, McKay showed the details to a visitor who claimed to be writing an article about animation. The visitor was animator John Randolph Bray, who sued McKay in 1914 after taking advantage of McKay's lapse to patent many of the techniques, including the use of registration marks, tracing paper, and the mutoscope action viewer, and the cycling of drawings to create repetitive action. Fortunately, the suit was unsuccessful, and there is evidence that McKay may have countersued. He received royalty payments from Bray for licensing the techniques. Oh, good. A fake version of Gertie the Dinosaur appeared a year or two (laughs) after the original. It features a dinosaur performing most of Gertie's tricks, but with less skillful animation, using cells on a static background. It is not known for certain who produced the film, though its style is believed to be that of Bray Productions. Oh, wow. Jeez. (laughs) So, uh, John Randolph Bray kind of sucks. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad he successfully... Oh, I mean, it would have... 
really forever changed what animation could be if that had worked for him. Oh, for sure. That's, like, super exclusionist in that, like, only if you had money could you do this. Yes. Which is... Oh, that would have been bad. Yes. Yeah. Um, Release and reception. Dinosaurs were still new to the public imagination at the time of Gertie's release. A brontosaurus skeleton was put on public display for the first time in 1905. Um, So advertisements reflected this by trying to educate audiences. According to science, this monster once ruled this planet. Skeletons are now being unearthed, measuring from 90 feet to 160 feet in length. An elephant should be a mouse besides Gertie. Uh, Emily Cole, who you remember from Phantasmagory last time, uh, praised McKay's admirably drawn films and Gertie in particular after seeing them in New York before he returned to Europe. McKay's post-Gertie life. Though reviews were positive, McKay's employer at the New York American newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst was displeased that his star cartoonist vaudeville schedule interrupted his work illustrating editorials. At Hearst's orders, reviews of McKay's shows disappeared from the Americans' pages. Shortly after, Hearst refused to run paid advertisements from the Victoria Theater, where McKay performed in New York. On March 8th, Hearst announced a ban on artists in his employ from performing in vaudeville. McKay's contract did not prohibit him from from his vaudeville performances, but Hearst was able to pressure McKay and his agents to cancel bookings, and eventually McKay signed a new contract barring him from performing outside of Greater New York. Jeez. Wow. Yeah. McKay used cell technology in his follow-up to Gertie, the sinking of the Lusitania. Um, Cell technology basically is what most traditional animation ends up using. And it has backgrounds that you then have cells on transparent paper of some sort that has the actual drawings of the characters that move on it. And so you put a cell over the background. A static one. Yeah, uh, over a static background, take a picture, put a new cell on that has a slight variation of movement, and so on. Hmm. Um, He didn't do that in Gertie. It's just all individual images. So he redrew that background all those times. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But uh, he used set technology in his follow-up to Gertie, The Sinking of the Lusitania from 1918. It was his most ambitious film at 25,000 drawings and took nearly two years to complete, but was not a commercial success. McKay made six more films, though three of them were never made commercially available. Around 1921, McKay worked on a second animated film featuring Gertie, titled Gertie on Tour. The film was to have Gertie bouncing on the Brooklyn Bridge in New York, attempting to eat the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., wading in on the Atlantic City shore, and other scenes. The film exists only in concept sketches and in one minute of film footage in which Gertie plays with the trolley and dances before other dinosaurs. He never finished it. Mm -hmm. After 1921, McKay was made to give up animation when Hearst learned he devoted more of his time to animation than to his newspaper illustrations. In 19... Uh, Right? In 1920... I know, William Randolph Hearst. uh. Yeah. In 1927, McKay attended a dinner in his honor in New York. After a considerable amount of drinking, McKay was introduced by animator Max Fleischer um, of of the Fleischer brothers who would go on to do stuff like Betty Boop. Um... Mm. McKay gave the gathered group of animators some technical advice, but when he felt the audience was not giving him attention, he berated them, saying, Animation is an art. This is how That is how I conceived it. But as, that, but as I see, what you fellows have done with it is making it into a trade. Not an art, but a trade. Bad luck. 
That September, he appeared on the radio at WNAC, and on November 2nd, Frank Craven interviewed him for the Evening Journal's Women's Hour. During both appearances, he complained about the state of contemporary animation. McKay died July 26, 1934, of a cerebral embolism. Wow. So, yeah, towards the end of his life, he uh, just bemoaned what animation was. And in 1927, that was still before Steamboat Willie. Yeah. So this was still the era of silent films. Legacy. Gertie's reputation is such that animation histories long erroneously named it as the first animated film, which we have learned that it is not. Gertie influenced the next generation of animators, such as the Fleischer Brothers, Otto Mesmer, Paul Terry, and Walt Disney. McKay's son Robert and Disney animator Richard Humer recreated the original vaudeville performance of Gertie for the Disneyland television program in 1955. This was the first exposure the film had had for that generation. Walt Disney once expressed to the younger McKay his feeling of debt and gestured at the Disney studios saying, Bob, all this should be your father's. An ice cream shop in the shape of Gertie sits by Echo Lake in Disney's Hollywood Studios and Walt Disney World. Aww. Yeah. So that's Gertie the Dinosaur. Wow. Now you have proper context for it and its impact. more appreciation for Gertie. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Its focus on realistic movement is something that very clearly stuck with Disney in particular, because that would be, that would be something that, that Disney really focused on. Um, The Fleischer brothers, like they, they tended to, to have more of that cartoony and kind of fluid uh, bodies morphing and stuff approach. um, And until, until they tried to compete with Disney, which we will see next time. Um, But Disney was always focused on that realistic movement, the more and more he advanced techniques. And it's pretty clear that the big inspiration for that was Gertie and the, and the realistic, especially at the time movement of the dinosaur. Yeah. It's so weird because I mean, compared to this day and age, it's like her, you know, the movements were, not fluid and and again I'm but like you have to compare it to the three ones to, before exactly. that, that we watched last time exactly. compared to those yeah. this is Disney level quality you know it's one of my favorite though is is the little elephant squirting back and then and then swimming away really my fast. favorite part <laughs> is when Jumbo comes in and 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 Gertie's just like so freaked out by this little thing is just like rearing up and is like I don't know what to do with you like just visibly uncomfortable and then Jumbo starts walking up the screen and she kind of nips at him a little bit before finally grabbing his tail and throwing him into the water I just that bit is probably my favorite bit just her reaction to this other character entering her her bubble yeah I like the the interaction with the environment like eating the tree uh, and then and then having the divot of where it was, like eating the rock divot, and then it throws the rock and like all that stuff sticks. And then I liked the little the little movements of of Gertie scratching her head with her tail. Yeah, those are very cute. That's that's interesting. Knowing that that he had to draw that background. Yeah, every time. Right, um, and I mean you can see that it jitters some. Like you can see that. Yeah, it's clearly not just a static image. Um, it makes me think a little bit of squiggle vision that would eventually exist in the 90s and later um, that purposefully does that, or even Ed, Ed and Eddie that like purposely always has the shaky lines. 
but here it was just because a very talented artist was drawing everything over and over and over again. For my research, McKay is an interesting figure who seemed a little a little full of himself, a little overly negative as he went on in his life, but also left a, an indelible mark on the industry. And would Disney have ended up the same without that? And would the rest of animation have ended up the same without Disney? Definitely not. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. And that's also part of why... I wanted to do this one before we watched Snow White, because Snow White probably wouldn't exist, at least not like it does, without this. That's interesting. It, to me, illuminates what a visionary Walt Disney was, because McKay didn't seem to think that this is something that that many people could do and go further for as illustrated by his not making patent for these things and saying, okay, anyone who wants to draw a thousand, not seeing where it could just, you know, start snowballing going from this technique to this technique. But I do Mm -hmm. feel like Disney did. And again, set the standard for the incredible animation that we have today. Um, Yeah, we haven't, we haven't actually talked about our, our podcast name, but how do we, how do we think this holds up? And we can kind of, let's snowball this also just into our final thoughts on these two pieces. Uh, let's talk about Little Nemo. Um, there's some obvious ways in which Little Nemo doesn't hold up, which is the racism. Um, that is super unfortunate. Yeah. Um, I, I think we all agree that the live action segments of both of these shorts don't really hold up. No. They are at at best boring, at worst, like aggravating they're just yeah because again it's just like this you know all white club of men that just seem just very privileged and very yeah yeah it's, just, t- it's very off-putting yeah and then you know just comedy from literally more than 100 years ago just doesn't always necessarily hold up anymore and it certainly doesn't especially when you're like oh we, we see where this is going like this this papers are going to be knocked down yeah just mm-hmm. do it just do it <laughs> it just takes so long just to get do there. it coward um <laughs> uh, but but yeah uh, the the notion that there's an act around it that we're we're missing i can see that's where the some of the flair would come from yeah um and then and then gertie is there's a certain roughness to it but there's also I can see why it would inspire so many people, why they would like see a man bring to life an animal that like no one had ever seen before and be like, I want to do something like that. Like I want to, to use the power that this medium clearly has based on this and do something with it. And yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I think both of these are imperfect. I think you're not necessarily missing a whole lot if you don't see them, but obviously it's good they exist. It's especially good Gertie exists, but also I don't think Gertie would exist if Little Nemo didn't exist. So I would definitely recommend watching Gertie at least, even if you don't watch the full thing, at least watch the main Gertie segment. Um, Just keeping in mind that this inspired so many people. Yeah, I like the way that we're doing it where we're chronologically then we can compare versus if we're going back and forth it's hard to to contextualize like this is one of the first 
and hearing some of the info if you're going to watch stuff around it that it's like oh this was part of a vaudeville performance or oh like what you're seeing or you will see some of the stuff that he used while he animated or like a visualization of how much paper he had to draw on that would be helpful to make the other stuff not as boring so yeah i guess my recommendation would be in in more of an academic setting and with the context of its history well and and it's also just amazing again to see just what this led to and what was accomplished in it because everything from Gertie walking and I'm specifically thinking of Gertie because in the little Nemo the movements were mainly squatting bend you know leaning over raising up your hands so it wasn't interesting. I mean, there was not much. I mean, the, the most story was, you know, them going into the carriage almost and the carriage going off. Whereas with like a dragon too. Dragon carriage. That is true. That, that was a cool dragon carriage. Uh, but yeah, but with, with Gertie literally initially being hesitant to come out of the cave, coming out of the cave, walking everywhere, even too, is even eating. And I can see where that would inspire someone because realizing, oh my gosh, you know, that of literally taking in something as it's getting smaller and, you know, and, and showing some kind of swallowing motion. Yeah. It just, it, the little movements like Valerie mentioned of, of Gertie, like itching herself with, or scratching herself with her, with the tail. Yeah. Laying down, breathing, just all of it helps make it feel like it's alive, even though you know, it can't be. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, feeling drives so much animation going forward. And I think there's definitely some people who are perhaps annoyed with how much of a focus it is for most animation. I think some people would prefer that there is a little bit more focus still on the more um, expressionistic avenues of animation rather than purely realistic. But I don't know. I think enough of that exists for me to be okay with the, overall focus on realism because it it just makes things feel alive and i think that is part of the magic of animation yeah and just the one thing that i want to compare it to you have always been so talented sweetheart in making things that aren't alive like stuffed animals or puppets seem real and my favorite is us watching you know like some i think we were watching rudolph and you had the abominable snowman and you i was just (laughs) rolling i could not stop laughing when you would you know the looks you would give me and you would make that stuffed animal of the abominable snowman seem so real so in that sense i can see almost the childlike giddiness or humor of adults as well as children seeing a drawing, you know, that they're used to, you know, you know, a drawing from a page all of a sudden seem real and have personality because that's the thing. It's the personality. That's what you do so well is you create with, with a stuffed animal or with a figurine, you, you just have a way of making that personality without saying a word a personality come out. And that's what's amazing about this inner... I think that's the thing that is the most interesting to me about Gertie. Thank you, Mom. <laughs> so let's go ahead and rate both of these. Remember, our our rating scale is on the same amount, but like, don't compare it to movies, compare it to shorts. Yeah, I guess for Little Nemo, racism thing was a lot. Yeah. So I guess I'll go like... 
I don't know what I give the other ones. I don't remember. But let's say 1.25 extra because of the dragon. (laughs) For Gertie, I will give like a a 2.75. We'll go with that. Okay. For Nemo, I think probably echo that. A 1.25 or I don't know. A 1.25. And then... And then for Gertie, yeah, I think for Gertie, I would say a 2.5 because I just, yeah, I just really like the, the personality and, and her interactions with a little, the little elephant. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to, you just said 1.25 for, mm-hmm. yeah. For Nemo. Yeah, I'm going to go with the same. 1.25 for Nemo, 2.5 for Gertie. That's all this time. Next time we will be looking um, at our first Fleischer Brothers short. Um, And also on our next main episode, we will be covering the first Disney animated feature film. So bit of a leap in uh, animation quality, um, but but that's fine. It wouldn't exist without this. Um, So join us next time. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Thank Thank you you for joining us. Take good care of yourselves and um, yeah, like, subscribe uh, and join us for our longer features where we cover films. But yeah. Until next time. Bye. 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 Love you guys. Bye. This has been How's It Hold Up with Danica Juarez and Jan James. You can find our podcast on Twitter at How's It Hold Up Pod. That's with each word capitalized and no apostrophe. Also, if you'd like to support us, we have a Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash user question mark U equals 2790566. Every little bit helps, and even with a minimum pledge, you get access to things you won't hear in our main podcast feed. Check it out for more info. The two pieces of music used in this episode were created by Kevin McLeod. You can find both The Curtain Rises and Cool Cats at incomptech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H dot com. Both songs were licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. More info on that can be found at http colon slash slash creativecommons.org slash licenses slash by slash 3.0. Thanks for listening.